0: Welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. This is the Fair Folk Almanac edition for November 2022. I'm really excited to share this episode with you. The Folklore of November continues on what was established in late October, which technically is the beginning of November, especially the first and second All Saints and All Souls Day. So if you're interested in revisiting the beginning of November, because that's when this episode comes out, check out the second half of last month, October's episode to catch up on what is happening in the first couple of days. I'm not going to cover it in this episode. But this episode is totally full of rich folklore that spans the time from the very beginning of wintertime with the end of the harvest at the end of October through to December which is very much the center of winter and the beginning of the Christmas season with advent. This month was called blood month or blodmonath according to the venerable chronicler Bede from England who was accounting for the Anglo-Saxon beliefs that he understood existed prior to the Christian calendar that he is describing in his text on the reckoning of time. He says Blood Monad is the month of immolations, for it was in this month that the cattle which were to be slaughtered were dedicated to the gods. So, immolations in this context would mean sacrifices. This is the blood month, according to Bede. And it's not surprising at all because this is the month when winter truly begins and animals are no longer able to find food out in the fields or out of doors as the plants begin to die. And so people are going to have to make a decision at this moment in time, whether they are going to keep their animals over winter, which they would only do for animals of particular value, because they are likely breeding animals to eat a lot of the time, not all animals, of course, but any animals that were bred for slaughter will be slaughtered at this time. And it's really cool that Bede, among others, left this note in the Middle Ages, the early Middle Ages, indicating that Not only were animals slaughtered in pagan times at this time of year, they were also dedicated to the gods. That slaughter was undertaken in a ritual format that invited the gods to eat alongside the humans and also gave a ritual religious purpose to the death of the animal. It's not simply utilitarian, it's sacred. And the soul of the animal or the spirit, however you'd like to conceptualize that, is honored In that process, you'll see that the ritual aspect of animal slaughter is actually carried through into the Christian era as well in the folklore of November, specifically Martinmas, the Feast of St. Martin on November 11, which I'll be speaking about at length. So this month, Blood Month, according to the Anglo-Saxon calendar, and Samhain, according to the Gaelic calendar, so it started with Halloween and designates the whole month being in this particular vein or theme of the supernatural intersecting with the prosaic, you could say, the everyday, and also the beginning of winter. The beginning of winter doesn't happen in a day, does it? It tends to happen in several days to a month. So I think it is quite appropriate, just in the same way that wintertime, Yule, was designated as two months, first Yule and second Yule, (laughs) according to Bede and in this Anglo-Saxon calendar. The cool thing about this particular November or blood month is that there is an eclipse of the moon, a total eclipse of the moon on the full moon on November 8th, which is very close to St. Martin's Day, which is a particularly rich bloodbath in folklore tradition. And the eclipse, as you may or may not know, tends to be called a blood moon simply because when the moon is obscured, it looks very red in the sky, as if it were soaked in Dark reddish brown blood. Themes that are particularly alive in the month of November, in the folklore of November, are boundaries between beings, between spaces of land, generosity of the harvest, between humans and animals and other humans, between classes, for example. The forces of control and violence and who gets to make decisions about them is definitely a question that's taken up in this episode as well. And there's a strong emphasis on the dynamic tension between the established order, which is often in the shape of humankind, perhaps the nobility, perhaps men, perhaps on horseback, the tension between that established order and the wild in the many shapes that it takes. It also looks at open spaces and access to land. There's a lot of folklore about people and animals traveling far and wide in many ways, and the wind doing the same. And of course, as I mentioned before, our core ties with animals and how they can be ritualized and made sacred. I'll be looking at Guy Fawkes Day and a couple of Saints Days, and that will account for the month. What's really interesting about Saints Days, when you're looking at folklore and when you're curious about paganism or other bioregional traditions that may have been eclipsed or absorbed by them, Saints Days and other official occasions, even government-ordained holidays like I, Fox Day, they can behave like magnets that just collect all of the natural and regional themes of that time of year. And in some ways, they preserve them by doing that, but they often also will twist them a little or a lot to suit the narrative that's preferred by the dominant force who funds and promotes these occasions, like the government or the church. So when we're researching and returning to traditional holidays like. Guy Fawkes Day and St. Martin's Day. The question is always how much of this folklore is a true reflection of the natural cycles of the earth and the world and the spiritual world that's entangled with them? And how much of it is just literal propaganda? And then, once we've gotten a sense of the difference between the two, if it's possible, then how can we take the life giving aspects of that folklore and use it in a way that empowers our communities? and the other beings and forces that we rely on for life. So that's what I'm going to attempt to do in this episode, specifically with relationship to a couple of Saints' Days and Guy Fawkes' Day. But first, I'd like to mention that November is the peak of two different seasons in the folklore calendar, specifically in the British Isles, both the droving season and the panage season. And I'll start with panage. panage is also known as common mast, and it's the practice of taking a company of pigs into the forest from mid-September through mid-November to eat the acorns and nuts that have fallen from the trees, which are not only great for fattening up the pigs before slaughter, but also just feeding them delightful snacks that they love, and also removing nuts that could be harmful to other animals that also forage in the forest and who cannot digest the shells or chew them up. This used to be a practice, panage, across England, specifically, and I'm sure Scotland as well. I just don't know about that as much. But now it's restricted to only a couple of places, including the New Forest in Hampshire on the south coast of England. And they have a really beautiful website about panage that you can look up because the tradition is carried on there. Again, it is much, much the exception to the rule. And I'll get into why panage traditions have not flourished in the last 300 years. And it has to do with enclosure. These common spaces used to be available for surrounding communities to feed their animals on. And now almost none of those common areas exist any longer. Another tradition that relies on the ability to move freely through the landscape that was incredibly common in early November in the British Isles is droving. And droving is a word you may have heard before. It's basically leading animals in herds across great distances, usually to sell them at a market or fair. And this would happen in early November because of the fact that this is time for slaughter. So people have grown these animals with the intention of selling them eventually or slaughtering them themselves. The excess animals that they intend to sell need to be taken to market. And somebody needs to be hired to take them to market because usually farmers can't easily get away from their farm and go travel far and wide on foot with a bunch of sheep or cattle. So specialized drovers were hired at this time who were considerably more reliable than perhaps other employees they might have, who could be trusted with the most valuable thing that a farmer has aside from their land, and who was willing to watch at night, manage a large flock of animals, travel across trails that are taken only by drovers. It's quite a beautiful image when you reflect on what it would have actually like looked and felt like from the outside. I imagine it's actually rather grueling. And the unique moment of bonding between human and animal. People would be spending every day with their sheep or cows, and they would have very likely dogs with them as well, who would help with the effort of containing the animals. So it would take a lot of focus in a very different way than we're accustomed to now, a very physically demanding and very focused task of bonding with animals and, you know, serving a common purpose of moving across the landscape. There's a lovely quote from Robert Macfarlane. He read a book called The Drove Roads of Scotland when he was researching a book he wrote, <laughs> researching for a book he wrote called The Old Ways, which I highly recommend, about the walking paths of England and Scotland. He says about this book, Reading Haldane, the author, has transformed the way I understand the highlands. He taught me to follow on foot the roots of the drove roads and to look for the patches of open ground that would have been the stances of the drovers, the resting places, close to water and on level ground, where the men could sleep and the livestock could graze. And he introduced me to the drovers themselves, these hard men, the long-distance lorry drivers of their day, accustomed to the boredoms and rigors of their journeys, and equipped with internalized sat-navs of astonishing accuracy. So that would be like a GPS. They navigated not from maps, but from memories, stories, and gossip. Another custom of November that had folks venturing out over open spaces was, of course, the fox hunt. Though fox hunting was outlawed in Scotland in 2002 and England in 2004 and remains legal in Northern Ireland, the legacy of fox hunting in English and Scottish culture cannot be understated. As I've researched this episode, I can't help but notice that there's just a huge body of folklore and specifically song related to the fox hunt. It's a really beautiful, rich body of folklore, as much as I personally disagree with the practice of of hunting animals not for food, personally, I can't deny that there is a lot of folklore around it. And thus the question arises, for those of us who oppose fox hunting, it seems that's the majority of people, for leisure, you know, and for the, the belief that they're pests, which it's been proven that's not an effective measure for pest control. For those of us who do oppose fox hunting, what do we do, (laughs) you know, with all of this beautiful folklore that people have poured their hearts and creative work into, right? It's a question that comes up a lot around artistry and tradition, you know, which traditions are worth preserving, which are worth discarding, and which are worth shifting a little bit. And the answer for me is shifting. In this case, I think it's an incredibly beautiful resource for us to just take the prism of our sight, like a kaleidoscope, and look at the fox hunt from just a slightly different angle. One that puts the fox at the center, as opposed to the man in the red coat. Let's look at the fox in the red coat, and maybe how not so different from the man this fox might be. Can we identify with the fox in a way that isn't necessarily just in terms of being a victim? but is in a celebration of the nature of the fox itself. I think that there's a lot of opportunity in these traditions to take them. And like I said, just, just shift them a little bit so that they take the focus of the holiday, which is taking a natural element and making it a symbol for human use and taking that natural element and making it the thing itself. You know what I mean? Giving the fox enough Agency and personality and importance in this month, in this time, to warrant its own moment. Maybe it's Foxmas (laughs) instead of the fox hunt. I don't know. It would be an incredible time because there is this cultural memory of hunting foxes at this time of year. It would be a really cool opportunity to focus just on the fox. What really interests me as well about the fox hunt tradition is that there's this whole Language that's spoken between fox hunters that I don't think we should lose, that I think is rooted in the context of November in more ways than just the concretion of many years of this particular practice. And that language is a combination of the tooting of horns, of different coded shouts that mean different things, like halloo, you know, or hey, or ha. There's all these loud noises, there's horn blasts as well, so many horn blasts involved in the fox hunt that seem to correlate with November in general. And I know that there's a lot of loud noise traditions connected with Halloween as well. And in a moment, we'll talk about Guy Fawkes and there's explosions, right? There's like fireworks. There's something about outbursts of loudness. And there's a moment, like I said, with droving and with panage and with the the riding over hills. And there's more horse lore as well, if you look for it in November. There's something about being heard and being present over a really far distance. And that may not be specifically something that the fox would be like connected with him or herself, but there is something about this, this vocation and this announcement of presence that I think is really important as well to November that I wouldn't want us to lose in the mix of rejecting fox hunting as a cruel practice. So what we can do if we want to focus... On the fox instead of the hunter who's gotten enough valor and praise in their time. Although I do recommend the songs. And I should say now, I have made a playlist again for the November Almanac episode because there were so many incredible folk songs for this month that I absolutely could not fit in this episode. And I want you to go listen to them. And many of them are related to hunting. So listen and see what you can get from them because there's so much richness and there's so many. Bizarre interconnections between all of the songs as well. You'll see these themes coming up that I've mentioned in ways that I don't have time to talk about specifically. So, who is the fox in itself? How do we look at the fox for the fox, not the fox for the people or for the hounds to kill? And the fox has been a central figure in European folklore from the start (laughs) in the regions where foxes exist. Fox is known as a symbol of cunning, of sometimes deceit. He's a trickster figure, typically considered masculine, although our modern language tends to associate foxiness with a feminine erotic attractiveness as well. There is a medieval text called Reynard the Fox, which was incredibly popular in France, and in the Netherlands, and in England as well, which has in some ways shaped public opinion about what the fox represents. And Reynard the Fox is a a real a real criminal. He does do a lot of dastardly deeds in this what you could call a beast epic. He has lots of friends who are also beasts but also kind of humans. And in some ways what he does symbolizes the corruption that's at work in the nobility in his society, but he also goes around doing awful things to other animals. So he is not just a good figure who's been painted with a bad mask. Raynard the fox is a bit problematic, you could say. And you'll see if you read the text. But I do think there's something really important to the fox folklore that we can be looking at in a way that doesn't do the typical sort of pitting him or her against the human society's order. Because right now that's kind of how it, how it goes. The way that we think about foxes is like this battle between good and evil, at least the way that it's framed in the, in the fox hunt. As much as fox hunters do seem to valorize the fox and like almost eroticize it, it's definitely seen in this polar opposite of humankind sort of way, like it's the wildness to the order of the hunt and specifically the dogs of the hunt which have been bred and trained from birth to be fox hunting dogs. And we have this opposition between the two even though the difference between a dog and a fox is very small. <laughs> you know, it's superficial at best. And I feel like that sort of the way that it's been emphasized that it's human civilization against this threat that's going to eat our livestock, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, this wily, cunning trickster who's here to be basically the devil. The way that they are polarized is artificial, and the difference between even humans and foxes is overblown. And I think we can get a lot more out of looking at where we do intersect and where we can lift up the fox as a beautiful symbol of the ability to shift, the ability to squeeze through small cracks, you know, to get things done in unconventional ways that don't garner society's praise. The fox is cunning, right? And cunning is important. Cunning is incredibly valuable, especially when you're in this power dynamic of the nobility which Reynard the fox is always making fun of and tricking, and the commoner, who in a lot of ways the fox represents. Which brings me to a really interesting irony in the fox hunt tradition. This is a very political episode, (laughs) you may have noticed. It's the fact that in the fox hunt, there is an excusing of trespassing on private property by people who are hunting the fox across the landscape. Because In the 17th and 18th centuries, many fences were built and hedges all across England to divide property lines and to keep the masses out of land, which had been consolidated for agricultural purposes, for growing sheep (laughs) and cattle instead of shared land. So anyway, I'll get back into enclosure in a little while. But the fox hunt seems to be an exception to this moment. And of course, the fox hunt is most of the time, but not always undertaken by nobility, who have the time and leisure to breed dogs, to buy fancy red wool costumes, etc. They're allowed to travel anywhere the fox goes, basically. And there are a lot of people who also appear to protest fox hunts. And historically, they would be convicted for trespassing in the areas where the fox hunts We're allowed to go because they are the fox hunts, and everybody just accepts them as a fact of life. So that's an interesting sort of irony (laughs) of this particular process that highlights the fact that in the fox hunt there is this imposed dynamic between the dominant group and a group that is oppressed. It's pretty clear there's there's a bunch of people killing an animal for no reason that can't defend itself and is not edible. There's a song that I grew up singing that my dad used to sing to me as a lullaby when I was little that I just found out when I was researching this episode. Researching for this episode is from the Middle Ages. It's actually a Middle English song which has survived mostly unchanged, (laughs) but just to permit for understanding, it has adapted to modern English. And it's called The Fox or also The Fox and the Goose. And it begins. The fox went out on a chilly night, and he prayed for the moon to give him light. He had many a mile to go that night before he reached the town. And it tells the story of a fox from the fox's perspective, sneaking into a goose pen, belonging to a farmer and a farmer's wife, stealing a goose, and escaping. (laughs) And the farmer wakes up, tries to chase after him, but he gets away, and he feeds his big family of fox cubs with the goose and it ends with the wonderful line, and the little one's chewed on the bones, oh. So this is, for you, The Fox, by Laura Veers. The
1: fox went out on a chilly night, and he prayed for the moon to give him light. He had many a mile to go that night before he reached the town, oh, town, oh, town, oh. Many a mile to go that night, the town. No. He ran till he came to the farmer's pen. The ducks and the geese were kept there in. He said, a couple of you gonna grease my chin before I leave this town. A town. Oh, town. Town. Oh, town. Town. Oh, couple of you gonna grease my chin before I leave this town. Oh. He grabbed a gray goose by the A flapper jumped out of bed. Out of the window, she popped her head crying, John, John the Grey Goose is gone, and the fox is on the town. Oh, town oh, John, John the Great Goose is gone, and the fox is on the town He ran till he came to his nice warm den. There were little ones, eight, nine, ten, crying, Dad, Dad, you better go back again for it must. A mighty fine town, 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 oh, dad, dad, you better go back again. For it must be a mighty fine town, oh. The fox and his wife, without any strife, cut up a goose with a carving knife. Never had such a meal in their life, and the little ones chewed on the bones, bonzos, bones. Never had such a meal in their life. And the
0: The other fox worthy of mention in November, who you may know from the rhyme, Remember, Remember, the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason, and plot, is Guy Fox, a fellow who was a Catholic in 17th century England. And in protest of Richard II, I think, imposing a lot of anti Catholic laws, like expelling all of the Catholic priests in the country, with a group of other protesters planned, plotted to blow up the Parliament and the Palace of Westminster with 36 barrels of gunpowder in the basement. And he was caught, and eventually the others were caught as well, as confessions were extracted through torture. And he actually is one of the only people who was not drawn and quartered, because he leapt from the scaffold when he was to be hung. Publicly, and broke his own neck, having been tortured for many days ahead of time. So, I don't promote violent terrorism myself, but I am really curious about how this November 5th event has played out in English history and symbolism in the coming centuries, because it very much has. November 5th is now a widely celebrated holiday in England, and the cause of celebration is the death of Guy Fawkes which in some ways kind of makes it an inverted Saints Day, because saints are celebrated on the day that they died, assuming that day is known. It's worth mentioning that his last name is Fox, which is a curious coincidence (laughs) with the fox hunt at this time of year, and the fact that he is considered cunning and conniving, plotting to take down the authority in England. I wish I understood more about why those two things hang together but I'm just glad that they do for the moment. So Guy Fawkes Day now in England is celebrated with lots of bonfires, lots of fireworks. And specifically, this is the tradition that has endured the longest since the 17th century, since shortly after the actual gunpowder plot, burning effigies of Guy Fawkes. And this is a really interesting practice. It has also sometimes evolved into burning effigies of the Pope or other political figures that are not liked by the public. So in the town of Lewis in England, there are particularly enthusiastic and high-profile celebrations of Guy Fawkes Day with parades and lots of effigies. The Pope is still burnt there, and Guy Fawkes, in recent years, Donald Trump as well. Not the person, the effigy. But the burning of effigies and these bonfires, this fire festival, and rolling of barrels of tar on fire as well through the streets, these all echo earlier, at least in some places around England, and of course in Scotland and Ireland, in the pagan times. And in some ways, you can see how the tradition of the bonfire that I spoke so much about last month has evolved into this other festival, which is promoted by and encouraged by the Anglican Church, the National Church of England, and the government of England. From the beginning, these bonfire events, these effigy burnings, were promoted and funded by the English government. And this is why this tradition has endured so long to pillory Catholicism specifically, but also anybody who would rise against the authority of, of the crown and of the the parliament, and the established order in England. So there is this kind of funny thing that I'm trying to like draw out here. And it's the fact that even though this holiday in its official form has been encouraged and perpetuated by the dominant authority in order to reinforce their authority, (laughs) it also contains in it this really anarchic and pagan sentiment of making fun of and disposing of authority through fire and destruction and loud noises and taking up space, through inciting fear in managed and controlled and symbolic ways. And I think that's kind of beautiful and interesting and definitely worthy of more analysis. So take a look out on the news. If you're in England, you'll know about it. (laughs) But if you're elsewhere, it's pretty cool to see the photographs and the video that come out of specifically Lewis in England at this time of year, relating to Guy Fawkes Day. Now, I'd say the biggest international event in Europe and other historically Catholic areas of November is November 11th. And I don't mean Armistice Day or Remembrance Day. I mean Martin Mass. That is the Feast of St. Martin, which in a lot of places begins on the day before, the eve. That would be the 10th. Martin is from Tours. He's known as Martin of Tours. He is a French saint who later joined the Roman army. It's complex. Martin is this complicated figure who has created a lot of folklore around this time of year because it is a symbolically and ritually rich time of year with both the Samhain festival and related festivals and also the slaughter of animals. Martin Mess has become... A huge folklore event for a lot of different reasons. Number one, the wine is ready (laughs) at this time. So the first wine of the season is drank. People will have bonfires. There are different variations on door-to-door visits in costumes, much like the trick-or-treating precedents that we talked about last month. Also, one of the most important aspects of this holiday is the tradition of slaughtering and eating a goose on St. Martin's Day. Specifically in Ireland, there are some pretty intense, I could say, customs around St. Martin's Day. There was a prerogative almost across the country that blood ought to be shed on St. Martin's Day, or you will suffer some dire consequences. So, quote from Mr. Farrell from County Galway, he says, Some kind of fowl is killed, such as chicken or goose, and then the blood is sprinkled in the four corners of the kitchen. In some houses, there is a cross formed with the blood or three drops. It is believed that if this is done, no member of the family will meet with a violent death during the year. So not only were domestic birds killed for St. Martin's Day, but also pigs sometimes. And this doesn't mean that people didn't eat the animals. It's just that they would use the blood in this ritually protective manner. I know that in Ireland, people would also sometimes wet a cloth with the blood and then keep it in the rafters dried. And then if someone was ill or had a toothache or some other serious ailment, then they would take down the cloth and apply it to the person for protection. St. Martin's biggest story is in terms of his hagiography, that is like his saint story from the early years, is that when he was just recently converted to Christianity in his early life, and he was a soldier in Gaulish Rome, he came across a man who was mostly naked and was very poor and was suffering from exposure. And St. Martin on his big white horse with his lovely cape and sword was not so suffering. So he took his cape, his shawl, and he cut it into two with his sword, and he gave the half to the man so that he was no longer naked. This is his main association and what he is sainted for in the later lore. But this isn't necessarily accounted for in his biography. His biography tells that he was in the army, which is accurate. And then later he was elected Bishop of Tours. And as Bishop of Tours and as part of his major career in church leadership, he took it upon himself specifically to travel the land, destroying pagan temples and specifically sacred groves. He had a special focus on felling trees that were sacred to the pagans. And there's actually a relic remaining of St. Martin that is like it's a, it was actually a bronze age axe, but it was reworked into a hammer and there's an inscription on the hammer that says this hammer fells the sacred idols of the pagans. How can they believe that there are gods in there? Or something like that. St. Martin was known, he's actually quoted, which is kind of unusual for a saint, as with, with commentary on how there can be no religio, no like spirit in a tree stump. And there's a, a story, we know that he did this campaign and is known for destroying pagan sites, but there's also this other, this other story that comes out of that, that he was about to fell the sacred tree to the pagans, and the pagans were present. And they said, okay, Martin, if you want to fell this tree, go ahead. But let us cut it, and you, you stand in its path. And then we'll be fine. We consent <laughs> to you cutting down this tree. And the way that the story goes, that is depicted in a lot of church reliefs and other medieval architectural features that have imagery, Is that he made the sign of the cross and the tree fell a different way. But as we know with a lot of these stories, that's probably not how it went. And also, probably the story was made up to illustrate that he was so holy that the idols just fell apart and acceded to the dominance of Jesus or whatever. So, as you can see, I don't really think very much of this Saint Martin figure. I think he's like pretty much demonstrably an asshole. Like maybe he gave someone half his cloak once but that's probably not actually true either. I think it is really interesting how he has come to be associated with the slaughter of animals. And one of the ways that that particularly is focalized is this connection between St. Martin and the goose. I want us to to have a moment for the goose when we're thinking about how does the goose function in this St. Martin story, where Geese are the primary feast that people eat across Europe on St. Martin's Day. How do they figure as important in themselves? But I'll first tell you the story. So, St. Martin, when he was elected Bishop of Tours, he didn't want the position. He was too humble or too afraid, and so he hid himself in a goose pen. But geese, being sensitive and aware, And maybe having a little bit like having it out for St. Martin (laughs) somehow. It seems like they alerted everyone to the fact that St. Martin was there by squawking and honking very loudly, and St. Martin was found out and made Bishop of Tours after all. But in revenge (laughs) for their indiscreetness, St. Martin took the goose, slaughtered it, and cooked it for dinner that night. And therefore, everyone eats goose in revenge for making St. Martin a bishop. See, this is where I feel like the story falls apart. So there's this like multi-century revenge plot against Geese for essentially promoting the saint. I don't totally understand how that like logically works, but it definitely like stuck. There's definitely like St. Martin and Geese, they hang out together. But the way that the story is told, they're adversarial. And I don't think that's necessary. I think the St. Martin lore is probably taking some goose lore that preceded it and is highlighting it and wrapping it into its own story. But there is something really cool about geese. I've actually found out in my research for this episode that geese are guard animals through history, that people will often have geese if they're choosing between another fowl, domestic fowl to keep around the house, because they actually are extremely sensitive to sound, and will alert anyone around if there's an intruder of any kind. I know that geese migrate to Central and Western Europe from more northerly areas, from the Arctic and the tundra areas, to places like Germany and Ireland and England. So it is possible that it's geese migration that originally prompted this association of geese with early November. It could also just be that this is the slaughtering season and it was more common for people to have geese than larger animals because not everybody has a lot of money. But there is something really important about the way that geese show up in November. There are a lot of geese associations with the winter goddess complex that exists in Germany and in the Alps in these sort of more southern Germanic areas all through the winter season. So geese... Are clearly important in many ways, both domestic geese and these migratory wild geese in the winter season. And I think that this St. Martin's Day featuring of geese just opens that season up. There's a really cool piece of weather lore related to Martin Mess and geese. And this is called St. Martin's Summer. There is typically, at least in England, a small warm period that happens in the beginning of November and is attributed to St. Martin and his generosity with his cloak that would warm somebody. At this time, when it's a bit windy, which it tends to be around Martinmas and warm, spiders will take the opportunity to, to climb up to a higher place and drift on the wind to leave like a really long thread. And you'll be able to see these webs all over fields at the end of October, in the beginning of November, whenever there's a warm spell. And this period of time, because of the association with geese and St. Martin, was known as goose summer. So it could be called St. Martin's summer or goose summer. But these webs woven by the spiders were later known as gossamer. This time of year was called gossamer and the light airy threads of spider webs were called gossamer. And this is where we get that word of something light and airy and glistening maybe in the wind. I think it's kind of a beautiful origin for that term. And I like the idea of celebrating this time as goose summer or gossamer. We're just considering and observing the behavior of spiders and the weather and of birds at this time of year and how they all hang together in harmony. Next, I'll share a song that references the weather around Martinmas, which can be warm, but in a lot of places will also be some of the first occasions of snow, as is referenced in this song called Martinmas time, which begins, it fell about the Martinmas time when the snow lay on the borders. And that is the borders area between Scotland and England. And it tells the story of a young woman who is invited slash pressured, coerced by a group of soldiers to come meet them at their encampment one evening. And instead of giving in to their pressure, she goes out and she gets her haircut in the shape of a men's haircut (laughs) and dresses up as a male soldier and shows up at the gates in this way that kind of echoes like mummers and guising traditions, as we know them like trick-or-treating. She shows up at the gates to this soldier's encampments and starts talking with one of their representatives who tells her like, no, 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 go away, (laughs) leave us alone. There's a lady coming tonight. No, he says, a wench is coming tonight. And she says, well, no, I, need, I have a bunch of soldiers who need somewhere to sleep. And he gives her 18 pence and says, go find lodgings in town and leaves her there. So she takes the ribbon out of her hair and ties it to the gate as well as her garter so that they would know that they would had a trick played on them and that she had no intention of coming and giving in to their really weird, creepy social pressure. So I like this story because it's empowering. It involves... Costumes and weather lore. <laughs> it's a beautiful November song that I hope you enjoy. This is Martinmas Time, sung by James Yorkston.
2: It fell upon the Martinmas Time when the snow lay on the border. There came a troop of soldiers here to take up their winter quarters. Well, they rode up and they rode down And they rode over the border And there they met a fair pretty girl And she was a farmer's daughter And they made her swear a solemn oath And salt tear in her eye that she would call up their quarter gigs when no one did to spy So she goes to the barber shop, to the barber shop when soon And she's made them cut her fine yellow hair as short as any girl. She goes to the tailor shop and she dresses in soldier's clothes, oh A pair of pistols down her side and a nice little boy was she, oh And when she comes to the quarter gates, it's loud, it's loud, she did call There comes a troop of soldiers here and we must have lodgings, all. Oh. He comes out and he gives her half a crown, oh Go and find lodgings for yourself, for here there is no room, But oh. she drew nearer to the gates and louder she did call, oh Run, run you gentlemen, we must have lodgings, oh Quartermaster he comes out and he gives her eighteen pence. So oh. I've gone find lodgings in the town for tonight so that comes a wedding show She's pulled the garters from her legs and the ribbons from her hair oh. She's tied them round the quarter gates as a token she'd been there. And she blew it aloud and shrill Oh, you're all very free with your 18 pence But you're not for a girl at all And when they knew that it was her Well, they tried to overtake her But she's clapped her spurs to the horse's side And she's galloped home with me Time when the snow lay on the border, there came a troop of soldiers here to take up their winter quarters.
0: The final holiday I'd like to mention for November is St. Catherine's Day, which is celebrated on November 25th or on the eve before the 24th. Now, St. Catherine is the patron saint of maidens and of wheels and of spinning. So she's very closely associated with spinning as in like spinning yarn, both in its practical aspects, but also its symbolic and more mythical aspects. She was connected with wheels because in her story, her saint's story, she was going to be tortured by the pagan emperor Maxentius. And he was going to put her on a braking wheel, which is a wheel that you would affix somebody to and then just sort of mangle them and wrap their limbs around the wheel in ways that are unnatural and horrific. And this was a well-known torture instrument in the Middle Ages, and this is stories from the fourth century. But when she came into contact with this braking wheel, it shattered. So she broke the braking wheel. But I think this is kind of just like a backstory to justify the fact that she's connected with young women and their potent ability to spin yarn, which is what creates all kinds of amazing clothing and protection for humankind. So she's related specifically to maidens. So that would be like unmarried women and spinsters. So that's people who remain unmarried and make spinning a profession. Doesn't have to be a derogatory term. It just means someone who's a professional spinner. But to be clear, she actually never existed. (laughs) Maxentius didn't persecute Christians. Some people have made the theory that the story's modeled on Hypatia, who was a philosopher in Alexandria, which is where she was said to live, a pagan one, who was persecuted by Christians. So sometimes these stories definitely get twisted and adapted. But what's most important about the story to me is that she's clearly representing a complex of feminine divinity that already exists in Europe, and especially Germanic areas of Europe which is this winter goddess complex, which is very heavily connected with the wintertime, with snow, with spinning, with young people, children, and protection of animals as well, which is one of the older connections of this winter goddess complex. So some other examples of winter goddesses that start showing up in their sort of features around November, but come into their Greatest focus around the 12 days of Christmas are Frau Holle, who appears in a Grimm's fairy tale quite late in her career as a winter goddess, but that's one of the ways that you might be most likely to encounter her, and Perchta, who is a alpine goddess with many similar features. Both of them can fly through the air, perhaps on a distaff, maybe as part of the wild hunt, they prescribe that no one should spin during the twelve days of Christmas or they will punish you. So there is a connection between wheels spinning and punishment, which is something that was absorbed by this Catherine figure slash complex. They also are connected with door-to-door visits, costumes, and masks, which is how specifically nowadays in Estonia, Saint Catherine is and has been venerated. So there are two main feast days in Estonia that like stand out for their beauty and the the length of the tradition or the endurance of the tradition. And those would be St. Martin's Day and St. Catherine's Day. And they both are expressed in similar ways in Estonia by going door to door in costumes with face masks, singing and begging for treats, but mainly offering blessings. And the St. Martin's Day mummers, you could call them or maskers, were typically men. And the St. Catherine's Day ones were typically women. And in Estonia, they would dress in all white to symbolize the snow and how she brings the snow. And there's a lovely parallel with the Germanic Frau Holle figure in this, because she is said to bring the snow when she shakes out her feather bed in alternate world. There's a, a type of song that's sung in the St. Catherine's Day door-to-door visits in costume in Estonia, called Kadri Laul. And Kadri is, is an Estonian version of Catherine. And Laul means song, so the Kadri Laul. And it's a blessing for the people who have welcomed you to their home for the year ahead, for the children and the animals. I assume I only have a touch of the Estonian translation. Here is Kadri Laul, performed by... The Chamber Choir of Tallinn University of Technology. This is a jazzier version, but I really enjoy it and I find it incredibly catchy. One of the main associations that I find really touching of the winter goddess complex and that bears specifically importance to the month of November is the fact that these winter goddesses have a tendency to be associated with geese. Perchta, the alpine goddess of the winter of spinning, is said to have a goose foot, which may have been flattened by pressing so much on her spinning wheel. And Frau Holle's feather bed, which makes the snow from the sky, is very likely made of goose down. These women, these goddesses can fly. They often lead the wild hunt. Sometimes offerings were left on the roof for Perchte, which I find particularly inspiring. It's something that I'd like to do, especially because if you're leaving the offering for this sky goddess, A bird may also receive it, perhaps a goose, perhaps a migrating goose. Geese have been associated with feminine divinity in Europe for millennia, possibly forever. Geese were guard animals or were sacred animals at the Temple of Juno in Rome in the 4th century BC when the Gauls invaded Rome. These geese alerted the Roman soldiers Of the presence of the invading forces when neither dogs nor men woke up and noticed because of the particular sensitivity of geese another way that goose folklore has been intertwined with these sky goddesses of winter is in the figure of mother goose who we all know and love and i think that this is like a much later association but as i was looking into it we've got a mother figure she's associated with children she tends to be surrounded by children. She's telling tales. She's spinning yarns. And she rides a goose, <laughs> which is something that we see Juno doing. And I don't think Juno and Frau Holle and, and Perchte are the same thing in any way, but there is this, this line between the three of them that is fascinating. And Mother Goose is spinning tales quite literally in the early imagery of her. She is shown in the first edition of Mother Goose's tales. It's called like Tales from My Mother Goose, but in French, was published in sixteen ninety five and it has the earliest written editions of Sleeping Beauty, Red Riding Hood, and Bluebeard, and the image on the front shows a woman sitting by a fire, spinning wool on a drop spindle, while children crowd around listening to her tales. So the connection between geese spinning and mothering, caring for, protecting, passing on a legacy of some kind, is there. I wouldn't say that mother goose is Frau Frauhalla or anything that's kind of like a weird way of collapsing history, but I love that that image endures, and it's one that we all know and likely grew up with. There's goose lore around the winter and snow everywhere, <laughs> I'd assume, in various forms. It's not always easy to find. This is a topic that I'd love to do more research in, and I would encourage you to do more research in. I'm going to link a number of articles about this winter goddess complex, and sometimes geese, in the show notes. But I'll add that in Wales, there are several sayings that illustrate the connection between wintertime snow and geese. When it snows, people used to say, the old woman is feathering her geese, or the goose mother is feathering her nest. And those quotes all come from a book called Folklore and Folk Stories of Wales by Marie Trevelyan from 1909. It's actually a book that you can find online. So if you wanted to look through there for some more early, folklore from Wales. As this episode draws to a close, I would like to share with you some ways of integrating the information that I have listed today (laughs) in summary and in bits and pieces. I want you to consider specifically animals from their perspective. If you're looking to apply the folklore of this month in your own life, think of animals as whole in themselves and not needing to be a symbol or a tool for humankind. And just like tumble that around in your brain and in your embodied experience. When you encounter an animal of any kind, how can you encounter them remembering and revering their subjectivity as whole beings in themselves? And there's a line from Henry Beston, who wrote a book called The Outermost House, A Year of Life on the Great Beach of Cape Cod, about animals that I think is particularly helpful for our focus this month. He says, for the animals shall not be measured by man, in a world older and more complete than ours. They move finished and complete, gifted with the extension of the senses we have lost or never attained, living by voices we shall never hear. They are not brethren, they are not underlings, they are other nations, caught with ourselves in the net of life and time. Fellow prisoners of the splendor and travail of the earth. So holding that in your being today when you encounter imagery of the fox or imagery of the goose and going out of your way to seek out fox and goose imagery would go a long way in helping you integrate the traditions of November wherever it is that you live. You can keep your eye out for what birds are or are not migrating You can visit a petting zoo and seek out a goose. You could eat goose. That's fine, too. How can you honor the animal world at this time of year when we are all in such enormous transition together, whether through hunting or slaughter or cohabitation for warmth or for visits or for the tradition of just honoring them, reading about them? There's so many fox and goose stories where fox and geese are. set up in this diametric opposition that we see in the human and fox and the human and goose stories of these occasions in November just open your mother goose book you know there's so many beautiful ways that you can engage with story specifically with fable and fable isn't just for children it is where these symbolic and sacred matrices reside that we can just open up for 30 seconds on any given day or longer I ordered a newer edition a newer translation of Reynard the Fox that was commissioned by Bodleian Library in Oxford recently in 2020 I think and so I'll be reading that through November and seeing what adventures Reynard <laughs> has gotten up to aside from the ones that I already know about. And in terms of physical space, you know in the tradition of of droving and of of riding on horseback over long distances that seems to be a part of November with the wind sweeping across the landscape and watching the spiders sweep across the landscape. I just want us to focus on how we can think of that in terms of our own lives. First of all, you can go for long walks on the moors if that's available to you. But also in terms of like your emotional and social life and your political life, because that seems to be at stake in November, how can you raise your voice and announce your presence. Toot your horn. Shout halloo, How can you take up space in ways that don't have to rely on the destruction of everything you imagine opposes you? Where is something that you think is your opposite what is really just sort of one one tick on the spectrum away from you, much like the dogs and the foxes. Can you take up space? Can you range wide? Can you announce your sovereign presence on the land, together with the land? using fire or hollers or horns and whistles. And if there's snow where you live, you can thank a winter goddess, or you can make a snowman or a woman or a snow angel. You can do research into any of the figures that interested you in this episode. Maybe read one of the articles that I link in the show notes or read with me a tale from Reynard the Fox, or you could even watch Disney's Robin Hood, which borrows from the Reynard tradition by depicting Robin Hood as a fox. When you go out into the world, when you encounter other beings, just, you could think of it like a hunt. (laughs) But think of it like a hunt where your quarry is the number of miracles in nature that you witness, is the richness of presence that's in every being, plant, and animal around you. We are in a really complex and abundant way in the gray area of the year between Halloween and Christmas, between these huge festivals, right in the center of the two. So how can you think about your life in terms of gray areas? How can you resist violence and domination instead of pushing against what you think is your enemy? How can you collaborate with the areas that are a bit closer to you by degrees? Can you open your perspective and subtly shift just a little, to include a bit more objective perspective, as if you were a goose flying over the landscape in migration. Do you need to be so fixed to one place, or is it possible that you might try another one (laughs) for a period of time in terms of the way that you see the world? Politically, this can be extremely rich, I would suggest. From my experience over recent years, you've probably witnessed along with me that there's been so much tension and oppositionality in our political and social lives, especially on the internet, bolstered by the internet. And I find it incredibly nourishing and enriching to see where I might align with people instead of opposing them, instead of making them my adversary, which in a lot of ways shapes you to their contours in unnatural ways that actually don't really benefit the world. They don't really do what you think they're doing. I'm just on a soapbox now, but (laughs) what can you do? How can you move the dial by collaborating instead of combating? Is my question. How can we embrace anything that we encounter as a tool as opposed to a barrier? Because as the folklore of November shows us, the fox can outsmart the dog, the goose can outsmart the saint, the commoners can outsmart the nobles. And they're all limbs of the same earthly body, whether we all like it or not. It's not one against the other. It's always a network of intersecting points. I want to share now, at the end of this episode, to close, a song that I encountered while I was researching goose folklore that resonated really strongly with the earlier folklore of November that has to do with ranging over long distances. And this is a song that was written in the 1700s in response to enclosure movements in England. England was one of the sites that started this enclosure movement across Europe. Now, enclosure, I promised earlier I would tell you what it was. Enclosure was a legal movement, but that started out sort of on a smaller scale, where people with political power, the nobility, and landowners and those who controlled manors, estates, started consolidating land and fencing it off from public use. So historically, most of Europe, probably most of the world, was commonly managed among people. So this is why we call ordinary people commoners, because they used the land collectively by organizing on the micro scale within their villages and towns, how and when and who would be able to hunt and gather, basically, across the landscape, because hunting and gathering has been a part of Western culture the whole way. We have this idea that like as soon as <laughs> as soon as the Middle Ages happened, there was no hunting and gathering, but practices like pasturing animals and panage, bringing pigs to the woods to eat acorns, and pollarding, cutting trees sustainably, just branches at a time for, for all purposes, but especially wood-burning, These were all a huge part of how land was managed historically. One of the reasons that countries came about is that people lived on the land together and wanted to manage the land. But there was this political power grab and land grab over 300 years or so from the 1700s until the 19th century that started in some ways in England and spread all over Europe where it was enshrined into law That people could appropriate land and fence it off and restrict access so that most of England was accessible to the people of England. And then a few hundred years later, almost none of it was. And people being pushed off the land where they had formerly farmed and had animals and lived had to move to cities and became the fuel for the Industrial Revolution. They'd been displaced. And later, of course. This fueled the massive colonization of North America because of the displacement of many European people. So this is like a huge historical force that even just if you read the Wikipedia article about it, you might get like the the kind of like rage that, that I have to suppress when I think about it. But I also find it extremely helpful to understand how these forces came about and how these practices are repeated when you blame other people. I'm thinking back to this this idea of oppositionality. When you blame other people for your problems and when you see them as your enemies and you try to fight and defeat them, you just repeat this power dynamic that dispossesses eventually the land first and then the poor people and then all of the people. So, understanding how enclosure affects modern population migrations and how it brought about industrialization and uh, mass poverty etc. is like super important. And I highly recommend you learning about it. But the reason I bring it up (laughs) is because there's this really cool intersection in this one song from the 17th century that was written in protest of enclosure called The Goose and the Common, an intersection between geese and this idea of common land, which has basically been mostly abolished in the modern world that I just find really inspiring, and frankly, like, gave me shivers when I read it for the first time. And I hope that it has a similar inspiring effect on you. And this song, as performed by the Askew sisters on their album called Enclosure, in fact, starts with the lines, The law condemns the man or woman who steals the goose from off the common but leaves the greater villain loose, who steals the common from the goose. The song ends with the goosebump-inducing line, The geese will still a common lack until they go and steal it back. Something that especially delights me about this song is the fact that it focuses on the geese, right? I know the geese are like a symbol for the commoner, but it also, it lets the goose be... The central focus, <laughs> and it, it also gives geese the agency of stealing the common back, which you never know. They have a little more rite of passage than humans do, in a sense. So that's all I have to share for this episode. I hope you'll check out any of the research that interests you in the show notes, and that you'll listen to the Spotify playlist, the November Fair Folk Almanac, and share this episode far and wide. Thank you very much to Sylvia Woods whose song Forest March provides the opening theme to Fair Folk. Please also, if you enjoyed any of the music in this episode, beyond streaming it, follow the link in the show notes to purchase the music straight from the artist, which is the way that will benefit them best. I love that you're here listening. I love that you take the time to do this and to connect with these traditions with me. It's a grand experiment that inspires me deeply and that's why I spend so much time making it. I thank you for being here, and I wish you a happy, cozy, wide-ranging, animal-loving November. This is the Askew Sisters with Goose and the Common.
3: But leaves a greater villain loose who steals the common from off the